would um, would only help, I think, to perpetrate one of the reasons that I just would have no interest in heaven if it were this right here, okay? I mean, think about it for just a second. We, we just sang of the saints that we will see. I've, I've spent the last two weeks kind of meditating on and thinking about this passage in Revelation 21. And as I've done that, names and faces have just kind of been flooding through my mind. Saints that have gone before us in this congregation, members of this church family over the last 30 years. And, and what I can't even begin to fathom in my mind is waving to them as they pass by on that cloud over there. You know, oh, hey, over there, they're floating by, you know, playing their harp. My goodness. Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven says, Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He needs only to convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unhealthy existence. If we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. and We'll set our minds on this life and not the next. And we will not be motivated to share our faith. Why should we share the good news that people will spend eternity in a boring, ghostly place that we are not even looking forward to? Amen? Is that what what you want? I mean, he doesn't even have a harp, you know? I mean, at least they'd be a little bit of time trying to learn that, right? No. I want nothing to do with that. And the Bible does not give us any of that. Okay? It does not give us any of that. That is, that is not the picture we have. And let me just tell you this. So I have a certain number of books, a certain number of commentaries that any series that I do, I'll, I'll pick out a few. And it is just a few. I, I, I just don't think it's a good idea to have a big old long stack of books up there that you're going to try to use because you can't even refer to all of them. So I have three or four that I use pretty regularly. And so I walked into JT's office Thursday morning. We were talking a little bit about it. He said, hey, have, do you have Alcorn's book, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven? And I kind of looked at him. I, I know he probably saw the look in my face because he's seen it a zillion times. It's like, well, no, and I don't really want to. And, and I thought, well, okay. I'll, I'll. So I, I got it, and I've seen it, and I've probably read it. I just don't remember. So he handed me the book, and I proceeded to spend most of the day reading that book again. My study day was pretty much blown up, just reading through Alcorn's book on heaven again. And I would commend it to you. Now, I'll tell you, it is, it is um, it's what one writer calls, um, or what I, I think is kind of a sanctified imagination in one sense. He takes biblical truths and then just goes wild with them in a in an imaginative way and i don't think by the way that it's an unhealthy way to look at heaven because randy alcorn argues from lesser to greater basically is what he's doing if 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 what we see on this earth as magnificent and glorious as it is 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 as good as we see it to be even the broken parts of it that still are, are amazing to look at then just imagine what heaven will be just imagine what it will be is kind of the that's kind of the premise of his book and so i do commend it to you um and here's one of the things he says in there the best life on earth is a glimpse of heaven and the worst of life is a glimpse of hell 
For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. And for unbelievers, it's the closest they will come to heaven. There's a lot of, just absolutely a lot of truth in that. And it's amazing for us to kind of think through, I think, um, how we envision, or even if we do, this idea of eternity in God's presence. I, I don't know that, I certainly don't think I think about it that much. In fact, if you look at your sermon notes, I, there's a quote there. I, I don't even know who came up with it first. Some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. You've heard that? I probably said it at some point in time over the years. But I think Revelation 21 and 22 would absolutely contradict that. And I know C.S. Lewis would, because he did in his writing. In his book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. He goes on to say, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most in this present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So we need to be more heavenly minded. And Revelation 21 and 22 are there to give us that reminder, to give us that picture. All right? Let's look at the text together. Then I saw, John says, Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be, excuse me, and, there, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this reminder, for this promise. And Father, we pray that our hearts and our minds, our eyes would be fixed on this truth, Lord. We'd be fixed on this place. Because as we saw, Lord, those saints that are lifted up before us as examples in Hebrews, Lord, they knew that this world was not their home and that you were preparing a better place. And so, Father, fix our eyes there, I pray today. Fix our hearts there. Lord, again, I pray that if someone here needs to know the reality of your promise, that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, Lord, that the old is gone and behold, all things have become new. I pray, Lord, that you would do that miracle of regeneration today. Uh, Father, just I pray, let your spirit take your word and minister to us now. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the big picture. All right. It's important that we have this big picture that starts in Genesis chapter 1 and will end in Revelation chapter 22 because it is the beginning and the end. We, we have to see that whole biblical picture of God's redemptive plan to really appreciate and understand the picture that he gives for us here in these last two chapters of Revelation. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we see this creation we see it very good, we see the fall, we see sin, and we see God putting in place a plan to correct that. In these last three chapters of Revelation, we see that brought to a conclusion. In the first creation, in the first garden, in that first picture that we have in Genesis, we have God visiting Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with them in the cool of the garden. When we come to this part of Revelation and this picture of eternity, of the new heavens and the new earth, we have this verse that you have on the screen, and I believe it's central to everything that we see here, that God's dwelling place is now with man, all right? He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the vision that John wanted to give his readers then, and he wants us to have it now. This is the vision. This is the promise that just compels us and, and gives us the drive to, to go forward. I'm convinced of that. It must be. And so here's the picture that we have before us. And that picture that's in Eden is, is just the beginning. In fact, Alcorn in his book, and I'm not going to try to quote him too much today, okay, but since I spent most of the day reading that book, Everything God tells us suggests that we will look back at the present earth and conclude, creatively speaking, that God was just warming up and getting started with this present earth. Keep that in mind. It was very good in Eden, and that was the warm-up, okay? That was the warm-up. The new heaven and the new earth that we see here in verse 1. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Revelation reverses what we see in Genesis. And Revelation is the conclusion of what we see in Genesis. And it's the story of God's redemptive purposes where he's creating a new heaven and a new earth. 
Would you say amen that we need a new heaven and a new earth, at least the new earth that we're in, right? I mean, we need that. We need the curse removed. We need death done away with. We need the old order that Paul says in Romans 8.21 is in bondage to decay and is groaning. This world is groaning around us. So that's what we need. And, and that's the picture that we have here before us in this passage. And I'm so thankful for it. It has blessed me. And what have we learned throughout the book of Revelation? Most of the time I have said, Revelation is not there to help us understand the future per se, as it is to help us just see what God has done in the past and remind us that God is faithful. Well, that same picture of what God has done in the past and what he had promised now gives us the future. It gives us this picture. In Isaiah, I read chapter 65, Behold, I create the new heavens and the new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66 says, The new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And Jonathan stole my thunder. I was going to read from Hebrews chapter 1 and, and just remind us of what Abraham and the saints were looking forward to, but he didn't go to Hebrews chapter 1. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Now, Peter was pretty clear. One of the discussions about the new heaven and the new earth is, what exactly does that mean? Will this current heaven and earth be completely destroyed and done away with and God just recreate again? Or will he, you know, become the master, the master mechanic who can fix anything and take what is broken and, and put it back together the way it was supposed to be? Which, which one of those will it be? Well, Peter seems to, to talk about the former. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. He says in verse 12 of chapter 3, that day will bring about the destructions of the heaven by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But there is a continuity even in that phrase, commentators point out, between the new... And the heavens and the earth, which is the old. There's a continuity there. There's a point of reference, if you will. There's, there is a beginning there. And I think I, Paul in Romans 8, I think, helps me kind of begin to put this together. He says in Romans 8:19, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see there what Paul is saying, and I'm not going to preach through Romans 8 again, but that the, re the redemption, the new birth that comes to believers is what the earth is longing for. And God subjected the earth to this brokenness to make that point and yearn, cause us to yearn for that. Here he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await for our adoption as son the redemption of our bodies. There is a connection between what Paul says here, what he says 
later in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is a Christ, he's a new creation. There's a connection between what God is doing with individual believers, making us new, giving us glorified bodies, as we saw, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a connection between what he's going to do there and what he's going to do with the earth. And he says in 1 Corinthians, in fact, turn over there. Let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 for just a second. Paul is answering a question that the church in Corinth had. And in verse 35 he says, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of body for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, he says in verse 42. What is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And he goes on to give us that picture in Adam and, and what comes through Adam and what comes through Christ. So his point is God gives us a body fit for that place where we will be. We saw that last week. Why would God give us a body that's fit for a glorious new place if he's not also going to create a glorious new place for that existence. And I, and I believe that that's what we see. It is going to be God creating a new heavens and a new earth. And is it going to be out of nothing? Or is it going to be out of what was there before? Well, listen, just as God, and we saw this in the last chapter, just as God can take decomposed, fire-consumed, worm-eaten, salt-water-dissolved elements... And create a resurrection body out of it. He can do the same with this earth. He can do the same with this existence. And he will do the same with this old, sick, groaning earth. And we can look forward to that. But what's up with this next statement? And the sea was no more. Quite frankly, I don't like that. All right? I'm sorry. Not that. Let me just, let me just tell you why I don't like it. All right, so I was born and raised in Boone. You all know that. I'm a mountain man, okay? And our family vacation every year was to load up the Cox camper along with all the dad and mom's supper club buddies and drive our fold-out camper to Sherwood Forest in Myrtle Beach. And we would spend the week on the beach. Every year we would do that. And I love the beach. I have always loved the beach. Now, my sons who grew up here in Roxborough, have always preferred the mountains, you know. I mean, they're okay at the beach, but they never even, they don't hardly even go out on the beach that much. I just love it. So I'm struggling with this right here, okay. What do you mean, John, that the sea was no more? Well, again, if we'll do, do a little homework and just do a little research and, be, and, and remember the context because John is writing to these 
first century Christians. And all throughout the book of Revelation, the sea has been a place to be dreaded, avoided, and corrected. All right? All the way back in Daniel, it was from the sea that Daniel's four beasts arose. All right? In the book of Revelation, it is the dragon who stands on the shore of the sea, and it is the beast that rises up out of the sea. The sea is not a good place, and those things that come from it in the book of Revelation are not good things. And even in the history of the Hebrew people, it was the enemies who came from the sea that were their most feared enemies. It was where the conquerors came from. In the book of Revelation and throughout the Bible, the sea represents unbelief and rebellion and turmoil and chaos. And so what we have here, in fact, earlier in chapter 20, remember, the sea is the place where the dead were. So I think what John is saying here is that all of those dangers, all of that chaos, all of that place of death and darkness, all of that place of mystery and fear is gone. Okay? It's gone. Now, I'm, I'm siding with Danny Aiken here on this, okay? Because Danny says, Beautiful bodies of water were a part of God's original creation, and I believe also they will be a part of the new creation. Amen, Brother Danny. I believe that too. Here's the point. All that danger, all that fear, all that darkness, all that unknown is gone. No more, Okay? Look at the next phrase. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. There's three words in your sermon notes there, three words in the outline that I want to focus on for just a minute. Covenant, community, and intimacy. And I believe that's what we see in this section. I believe that's what we see here. First, covenant. God had made a promise to David. He'd made a promise to King David, the man after God's own heart that God would fulfill in him and through him his promise to have someone seated on that throne. He promised that. Back in the Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, the word that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is that focus in that covenant promise. It says in Isaiah 52, Awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. God had made these covenant promises. And here in the new heavens and the new earth is this capital city, this picture, if you will, of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And as J.T. read from Hebrews, Abraham was looking forward to this city whose builder and designer, whose architect, if you will, is God. And all these people in chapter 11 of Hebrews are looking forward to the city that God has prepared for them. It's God's covenant faithfulness. But it's also community. All right? So here's the amazing thing about the new heavens and the new earth. And I believe what we see here is the perfect combination of urban and rural. Okay? The perfect combination of the city and the country. Because he says, 
There's this city, and and all throughout the picture that we have in the Old Testament is God taking his people, centralizing them, putting in this place where there is community, where there are people sharing life and relationships and God's faithfulness. They're they're, They're sharing fellowship. There's the center of culture and creativity. There is everything that made in the image of God was meant to be as these people come together. And they're perfectly reflecting that image of God. Now, God is preparing this city. It says that he is building it. He is getting it ready. But we saw earlier that the people of God are being robed, if you will, in the righteous deeds that they work and that they prepare. So God has prepared this city. And here's what we will see in the rest of Revelation 21 and 22, I believe. This city, this new Jerusalem is a place, but it is also a people. It is that central place, if you will. Alcorn says that heaven will be populated by all kinds of little villages and establishments. I don't know, but there will be one capital, one central place, okay? I don't, I don't know about that, okay? But this new Jerusalem is perfectly pure. It is perfectly holy. And it is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised and looked forward to in the Old Testament, as we see. So it will be this place of community. It will be this place where we will see the image of God flourishing and bearing fruit. It's also a place of intimacy. Because there's that picture that we have, a bride. And throughout the scriptures we've seen this. We spend time talking about it in our membership class. I talked about it this past week at a, at a men's conference that I did. Our understanding of the body of Christ, our understanding of the people of God, is so enhanced, it is so much more when we understand the pictures that God gives us to understand His people. That we are His flock. That we are His building that He's building up into a spiritual dwelling place for Him to dwell. That we are a family adopted together. We are a body integrally related. And we are the bride, holy, set apart for Him. Intimacy, And this city is prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. She is beautiful as, as the most beautiful bride would be on her wedding day. Isaiah 61 prophesied this. Isaiah 61, 10, 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Paul says this same image holds true for the church in Ephesians chapter 5, where we as husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to present her to himself, he says, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish. The word here is cosmeo. It's the word where we get cosmetic. So, so this bride is, is beautiful. She's magnificent. But this is not a cosmetic, superficial beauty. We understand that, right? It's not that. In fact, I think it's closer to what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3. Let your adorning, he's, he's speaking to the women in the church, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That, that's what we see here. The holiness, the beauty, the purity of this bride, the intimacy. It will be developed more as we close out this book, okay? 
And here's the perfect presence of God. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. My mind went back as I read that earlier to Solomon's prayer as he dedicated that beautiful temple that he built. And remember his prayer in Second Chronicles? Solomon prayed, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays for you. Solomon says, will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Yes! Yes, he will. In the new heavens and the new earth, God will dwell with us. Tabernacle is the word. With us. And the tabernacle will not be off someplace in the wilderness someplace. It won't be stuck someplace that we have to struggle to find, okay? It won't be behind a curtain where the Holy of Holies is is hidden. No, it will not be that. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle that God told Moses to build represented what? The very presence of God. And the temple with all of its beautiful ornaments, all of its beautiful architecture, that Holy of Holies in the middle, what did it represent? The presence of God. Well, guess what Revelation tells us will be in the new heaven and the new earth? Jesus. God Himself. Look over at the end of chapter 21 and see what He says. And I saw no temple, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The perfect presence of God. There is no time, no place where God will not be front and center. Think about your week this week. In fact, just think about the last three hours. Sunday morning, getting ready for church. How much did we really think about God? How much did you think about Him? What about this past week? Am I the only one that struggles and I'll come through a day? A day of ministry? A day of doing preacher stuff. And I think back, I'm not even sure I thought about you today, Jesus. That will not happen. That will not happen in this place. We will never forget about him. There will be no activity. You know, Paul says we're to do everything here for the glory of God. That will be done there. Everything. There's a life group question that we're going to give you to think about this week that kind of relates to this question said God wants our true desire and joy to be in him and the promise that he will intimately tabernacle with us live with us be with us in a way that we will enjoy him and desire him forever and and so how can we cultivate that now how can we begin now to hunger for that how can we begin now and what is it that stands in the way of that I believe C.S. Lewis was hitting on something when he said, if we don't ever think about heaven, our mind will be consumed with the things of this world. Then the next passage tells us, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you see that? God himself will be with us and be our God and we will be his people. And here's our father 
picking us up and wiping our tears himself. Holding us. The prophecy that Isaiah gives us earlier, the command that he gives to the people of God, stand up on a high mountain and say, Behold your God. And our God who scoops out the valleys and forms up the mountains and created this world holds us to his chest like a loving father, holds us to his bosom, picks up his precious lambs. And here God himself will wipe away our tears. And do you, do you recognize, church, that God uses this suffering of this world, brings suffering into our lives to cause us to hunger for there and to not get too settled here? Do you realize that the fear of death and impending death should cause us to hunger and yearn for the promise where there will be no more? And that's what we see here. Chuck Swindoll gives us a list of 12 things in his little, little booklet that he did on Revelation. 12 things that will not be in heaven and, by the way, will not be missed. Okay? No more sea because the chaos and calamity have been eradicated, number one. Number two, no more tears because no more hurtful memories will be there. No more death because mortality is swallowed up. No more mourning because sorrow will be completely replaced with comfort. No more crying because the sound of weeping will be soothed. No more pain because human suffering will be cured. No more wickedness because evil will be banished. No more temple because Father and Son are personally present. No more night because God's glory gives us eternal light. No more closed gates because God's doors are always open. No more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted the curse. I was thinking about that early this morning, 4.30. I woke up and, and as I was reading back through the text and just kind of praying early this morning, I started this mental exercise with myself. I won't belabor you with this, with what I did, but I call it the ABCs of no more. I would encourage you to do this. Just take Revelation 21 and 22, find a quiet place, and write down the ABCs of no more. I did that. No more anxiety. No more No more Alzheimer's. No more ALS. B. No more battered, beaten wives and children. No more brokenness. C. No more cancer. No more kidney stones, Brian. No more catastrophes. D, no more depression, desperation, or despair. E, no more emotional abuse or breakdowns. F, no more failures or frustrations. G, no more godlessness. No more grabbing and grasping from what might be lost that I need to hold on to. And I won't go any further, but just F, G, H, I, J, K. Do that. And praise God you can. Praise God for the promise that He, that he gives us. And here's the other thing that we want you to think about this week. These promises of no more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. Who do you know that needs to be comforted by that truth? It might be a sister or brother in Christ right beside you. It might be a neighbor beside you. Who do you know 
that's in a place of sorrow or misery, and how does this reality give you everything you need to speak into their lives? You don't have to come up with something to say. Just share the truth of God's Word here. The end of suffering. Then there's this promise. Look at this. And he who was seated on the throne. We have a lot of words from God here, okay? God himself is speaking. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. That last phrase there, I was thinking about that. Jesus said in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Here's the fulfillment of that. We'll see that later on. This river that flows from the throne through the city. And any time we need it, we just dip out of it. Behold, I am making all things new. I remember when we made a video for the 50th anniversary of Westwood. I think it was for that. It may have been back when we did the first capital stewardship campaign. We did a video there. And one of the things that we talked about was just how God has been so faithful to our church throughout our history. And I remember referencing Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I I now declare before they spring forth, I tell them to you. Paul said, I mean, the prophet says, don't focus on the past. Think about the new things that God is going to do. Well, here in Revelation 21 and 22, God from the throne tells us what new things he is going to do. He gives it to us. I'm going to make all these things new. There's not going to be any more chaos and disorder. I'm going to live with you personally and you will live with me. The effects of sin will be gone. Your desires, all of those God-given desires that he gives us will be fulfilled. Our inheritance will be more wonderful and plentiful than we can ever imagine. This place will be incredible. Incredible. The glory of God will permeate everything. The nations, he says in later on in chapter 21, will come to him. Peace, justice, everything we desire, protection, all of that will be here. Productivity, it will be incredible. And there will be, I believe, perpetual, perfect service for him. Write this down, God says. These words are trustworthy and true. Jesus, earlier in the book of Revelation, called himself the faithful and true one. Here, the same thing is said. He is faithful and true. And it is done. It is complete. It is finished. Jesus said it on the cross. And here it's said in heaven. It is done. It is finished. One more Alcorn quote. God has his hands on the earth, and he will not let go, even if that requires his hands be pierced by nails. Both his incarnation and those nails secured him to earth and to its eternal future. In the redemptive work far larger than most can imagine, Christ bought and paid for our future and for the earth's. It is done. David Platt said he had the first word in history, and he'll have the last word in history. In verse 7, the one who conquers, I'll give him this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's a comparison here in these last verses of this first section. A A comparison between those who conquer and those who cave in. And that's exactly what we see here. In 1 John 5, John writes, For everyone who's been born again, excuse me, has been born of God, overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is that who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the one who conquers will have this heritage, literally an inheritance. This is the inheritance. And what is that inheritance? It's God. It's God himself. I will be his God and he will be my son. And he gives us these these pictures of what that will look like back in Revelation 2 and 3 with the letters to the seven churches. Again, you have to see this whole book as, a, as this complete picture of God's redemptive purpose. In Ephesians, they were promised the tree of life in Ephesus. In Smyrna, they were promised that they would not be hurt by the second death. In Pergamum, they were promised that they would be given a new identity, a, a white stone and a new name written on it. In Thyatira, they were promised to be given authority over the nations and given the morning star itself. They would rule with God. Sardis, they would be given holiness and purity, white garments. The name never brought it out of the book of life. And God's promise, or Christ's promise, that he would confess their name before his Father. In Philadelphia, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of God. You will always be in my presence and a part of what I'm doing, he says. And in Laodicea, you will sit with me on my throne. Those are the promises that God gives his people. With him, doing what he's doing, ruling and reigning and maintaining this new heavens and the new earth. What a beautiful picture that is. What about those who cave in? What about, and, and, and here's the names that, here's how they're described in verse 8. The cowardly, the faithfuls, the faithless. The cowardly, I think again we see the letters to the seven churches and throughout the book of Revelation. Who are the cowardly? They are the ones who loved their life. They loved their life. And they loved their life more than they did God. And they feared persecution more than they feared Jesus. Those are the cowardly. The unbelieving, the faithless, they're those who are unwilling to walk faithfully through the trials and suffering that are brought into their lives. They've, they've shown that they're not faithful. Again, Abraham and all those saints we see in Hebrews are the opposite of this. It says the abominable and the, de- the detestable. And this is those who have just become so unclean, so detestable in the eyes of God because they have submitted to the emperor. They bought into the world's ways. They bought the lie of the beast. And they turned away. The murderers. It's those who have killed the saints through martyrdom. I believe it's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, those who kill with their words. As we saw last week in that great scene of judgment that Jesus says, it's those who kill by just ignoring and just not just negligence. The sexually immoral. Again, a lot of this ties into the cults that were so present there in that day and still are today, if you will. Those whose lives are just tied up in that sexual endeavor and those lifestyles that are contrary to God's plan and purposes and the opposite is seen in the bride, in her purity and in her holiness. The sorcerers, the word there that's key to that is, is the Greek word pharmakos. It's, it's drugs, pharmacies, where we get that word. And the idea here is that, that drugs and all of that that goes along with the spirit world and witchcraft and magic, people trying in some way to manipulate God instead of letting God have control of their lives. Idolaters, that speaks for itself. The worshipers of the idols, the worshipers of the beast. The worshipers of the idols that I throw up in my own heart. And finally, the liars. Those who are just habitually deceiving themselves and others. They claim to have the truth but deny it. 
Many commentators say this is a real word of warning to those who would feign Christianity, those who would appear to be faithful on the outside. But these characteristics are true to them. None of these have access to the New Jerusalem. They'll spend eternity in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So there's this promise of blessing and this another word of warning. Let's, let's close this out. How do, we, how do we take this picture that we have? It's going to be developed so much more in Revelation 21 and 22. Again, this cloud, this scene you saw from Gary Larson, forget that. Forget that. Next time someone says that a friend of theirs or a child of theirs or someone you may know has died and now they've earned their set of wings, help correct that. Help correct that. Speak the gospel into that. That no, God has so much more for those who trust Him. The angels, Peter says, are looking over the walls of heaven yearning for the salvation that man receives. No, God has much more for us than He does the angels. It's not disembodied. It's not cloud floating. It's not heart playing. Well, it might be heart playing, but you'll want to do that, okay? All right? It might be. It might be. I look forward to playing the violin, the guitar, the bagpipes, getting back into the trumpet. There's a lot of things I want to learn, okay? Just, I digress, though. All right? Colossians 3 gives us this command. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Set your mind there. And yes, I know it's hard. I read a story this week about a young woman named Florence Chadwick. You might have read this story. In 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California in a place called Catalina Island, and she was determined to swim from Catalina Island to the California shore. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways, and she wanted to be the first woman to do this. The weather was foggy. It was chilly, the writer tells us. She could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. She swam. Until finally she begged to be taken out of the water along the way. Her mother in a boat alongside her told her she was close, that she could make it. And so finally, just physically and emotionally exhausted, she couldn't swim another stroke. And they had to pull her out of the water. And it wasn't until she got to the shore that she discovered she was less than half a mile away from making it. At the news conference the next day she said, All I could see was the fog. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Do you see the shore? Do you see it here? Do you understand? I know the fog can be thick. I know the bright lights of this twinkling world can drown out, it seems, the glory of what's to come. But God wants us as his people fixed on this place, fixed on this promise, fixed on him. And as Alcorn said, the best of this life is just a little taste. I think about that. 
I think about the beautiful, I love to take pictures of sunsets. Ask Susan. She gets exasperated with me. Not just over my photography, but I have thousands of pictures of sunsets at the beach, and I have thousands of pictures of sunsets in the mountains. Every place I go, I take pictures of the sunsets. And it'll be like a light bulb burned out (laughs) compared to what we'll see and what we will experience. I can't wait. And this beautiful earth, and it is beautiful, it's just a taste. It's just a, just, just a glimpse of what's to come. And God wants us just enamored with that. He wants us encouraged by that. He wants us motivated by that. And that's the word that God has for us today. And it's a good word. It's a good word for the people around us. You know, hellfire works some, but, you know, I think sugar works better. This is, this is sweet, church. And I don't have to tell you how, how badly you need it, how badly we need it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful picture that you've given us of this work that you are preparing to carry out to completion. Father, I pray for any brother or sister in Christ. I pray for all of us, Lord. We, we know that you are going to be faithful to complete what you've started in each of our lives, Lord. And I pray that you'd encourage us by this picture, this reminder, this promise that you're not going to give up on us. And that what you have for us is better than we can even imagine. Father, I thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lion of the tribe of Judah who has defeated Satan. I thank you for the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus is even in this place. And Father, I pray that someone today, anyone who has never trusted in Christ, Lord, they're still carrying the grief and the burden Maybe not grief and burden, maybe just the reality of their sin, the guilt, the emptiness. Father, I pray that you'd remind them today, as you've said in your word, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all the old has been removed and all things have been made new. So God, give someone that newness of life today in Christ. And Father, fill us, I pray, with a desire to share this good news with people around us that are so hurting so broken, so needy, and so hungry, and many of them don't even know what they're hungry for. Lord, help us to point them to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.